The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. It's nice to see everybody here tonight. I don't know if you noticed on your way in. I don't know if I mentioned. No, I wasn't here last Sunday. Hopefully, many of you got to hear me, Ocean Kelly, a wonderful local teacher, a longtime person who's been teaching at Common Ground when we can get her. And um, but two weeks ago, I started teaching about the five aggregates, this teaching that the Buddha used many, many times in his discourses over his 45 years of teaching way back when. And it's his way of teaching about, as I mentioned this first week when I talked about it, the answer to the question, what is this? Well, it's the mind and body, or it's the activity of the five aggregates. It's his way of talking about what this is. And as I suggested in the guided meditation, you know, what really defines the present moment is that it's being known. That's actually the relevant part of the present moment. See, we forget this. We think, oh, I'm at common ground. But more interesting than that is whatever we're taking to be being at common ground is an experience that's being known, like seeing the room is being known, or having the thought, I'm at common ground, is a thought being known, or recognizing faces is an experience being known. Or having an emotion, like feeling safe here. Well, that feeling of safety is being known. And it's like, you know, that joke about a fish not knowing the experience of water, right? Because they've been, a fish has been in water all the time. So it loses sight of it. It doesn't have any contrast. And it's the same thing with the experience of knowing. It's always happening. Knowing is always happening. So we don't highlight it. We don't sort of put it front and center and recognize, realize, oh, this ache in my knee, that's sensation being known. So we are often an object, you know, in terms of how we move through the world, we're object-oriented. We're focused on the sight that's being seen or the sound that's being heard or the sensation that's being felt or the thought that's being thought. And we tend to forget that it's something being known here, now. We can't even answer the question, known by whom or what. We just know that it's being known. That's what we know, that experiences are being known. And again, as I mentioned in the guided sit, it might seem a little like, what's the point of emphasizing that experience as being known? But what you can find in your own experience by doing it is seeing the effect on the heart, on the mind. When you train your mind to be an experience in that way. Because what we don't recognize, another thing like a fish not knowing water The other common pervasive 
and unseen tendency of our mind is to frame it, to keep framing experience in very particular way, in ways that feel personal. Right? When I see something, the way my mind understands that experience of seeing is always in terms of a personal frame. I'm seeing this. I like what I'm seeing. I don't like what I'm seeing. What I'm seeing reminds me of an experience I had. But there's always a sense of me starring in our experiences. And that it just gets imputed. It's like a story that the mind keeps telling to itself, keeps taking the raw data of the present moment and telling a story that involves a self. And it happens so quickly, so pervasively, we don't notice it. So a way to break that spell, to uproot or begin to challenge that habit, is to take up this other training, this teaching the Buddha gives us on the five aggregates. So if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago when I first talked about this subject, the five aggregates is just a slightly more sophisticated way of talking about the mind and body, or what can be known, right? So what can be known is body, that's one of the five aggregates, or form, as it's often translated. And by this, the Buddha means the five physical senses. So we know hearing, we know seeing, we know tasting and smelling and touching, right? That's form or body. That's one of the five aggregates. One of the five ways we sense or know experience. And then the other four have to do with mind. So there's body, the five physical senses, right? And there's mind. Now, how do we know mind? And I mentioned this, again, two weeks ago, but I'll just review it. So we know the mind because every time we have contact, the mind knows something, whether it's sensation or it knows a thought or knows any aspect of experience. There's always a feeling tone that arises with the sight, the thought, or whatever the experience is that's being known. Because that's part of what the mind does. It, it, it assigns a feeling, a pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality to every experience. And that, are, that happens automatically. Nobody controls that. Right? If, if you show me my favorite food, even just seeing it or smelling it, the mind knowing that there will be a pleasant feeling tone, just in seeing it, or even just mentioning it, there will be a pleasant, or mentioning my favorite place to be, or my favorite person, right? There's a pleasant feeling tone. Bring to mind my enemy, and there's a different feeling tone. Talk to me about something neutral, like the table that's in the basement, right? (laughs) There will be a neutral feeling tone. I don't really have a charge, positive or negative, so we call it neutral. But that's still a feeling, right? That absence of being attracted to it or absence of being repulsed by it, that also is a feeling that arises, can't be stopped. So we always have that. That's one of the aspects. It's like what the mind, having a mind means you're going to have a feeling with every perception, that's the second part of the mind. And again, you can't stop your mind from perceiving or recognizing. Even what the mind is knowing is completely unfamiliar 
the mind will still recognize that as being something I don't know, right? That's a recognition or a perception related, very closely related to memory. So in every sense experience, there's a feeling tone, there's a perception, there's mental formations, or this is like a a collection of other mental activities that aren't feelings or perceptions. So this would include like having an intention to do something, feeling motivated or a compulsion to draw back, to lean forward, to ask a question. So that that force to do, that also arises in the morning moment rather and can be known. And then the the fourth aspect of the mind is consciousness, that it's being known. Consciousness can be known indirectly at least, right? We know there's consciousness because it's being known. So we have these four aspects of the mind, the five physical senses, and this is this is the world. This is what's being known. This is an answer to what is this. It's the body and mind being known. This is being known, right? And the Buddha calls this the fuel for suffering. I mentioned this again two weeks ago in the talk about the... Uh, It's not that the mind and body is bad, it's just the mind and body. It's just these, the way we're sensitive. But happens to be fertile ground, as we've all experienced directly, for being tight, for being stressed, for getting entangled and feeling burdened in life, right? Suffering. But it's not... We don't want to blame the fact that we have a mind and body, but something arises dependent on having a mind and body. And so let's just call that struggling or suffering or stressing or reacting, right? Resisting. These are the words we use that to describe the activity that arises dependent on having a mind and body, not necessarily, not You don't have to do this with the mind and body, but it's our tendency when we have these five sensitivities, sensitive to the five physical senses, sensitive to feeling, to perception, to intention or other mental formations, and sensitive to consciousness. When we're sensitive in these ways, we tend to get entangled. We tend, the heart tends to get tight or mind, or body, or whatever this is, tends to get tight and burdensome. Isn't that true? So then the question is, well, what ignites that? Like, what turns the ordinary mind and body, being sensitive in the ways that we're sensitive, what turns this, what causes this to be the fuel for suffering? And this is an image, as I mentioned before, the Buddha used, fire as an image for suffering. It's the fire that's the problem, not the wood that the fire is dependent on, right? So in this case, suffering is dependent on having a mind and body, but you don't blame the wood for the fire. You blame the cause, like who started that fire? How did that fire start? And what we find when we observe or what we find when we read or study the teachings of the Buddha is that wrong view 
or wrong understanding is the spark that turns ordinary fuel, like having a wood or having a mind and body, into a problem, into a person, what appears to us to be a personal problem, like my heart is entangled, my mind's a mess, my body's tight, I'm upset, I'm hurting. And so when we have the wrong view, take things personally, then we have problems. If only we could stop taking things personally. And the cure, like how do we get to that place of having a mind and body without taking it personally? Can you guess what the Buddha might say to answer that question? (laughs) Yeah, but what's the cause for the stopping the take the stopping taking it personally. We have to see the mind and body. We have to study the mind and body until there's so much data proving that it's not personal. It overwhelms the habit of taking it personally. Right? So we have to observe the body as body. Observe the mind, the activity of mind as activity of mind. This is just something being known. This is something being known. So, we sat for about 35 minutes tonight, as we normally do, and probably in those moments when our minds were not distracted, we collected some data. Oh yeah, breathing in is being known. Breathing out is being known. Whether we use those words in our mind or not, of course, isn't relevant. What's relevant, did the mind understand the activity of mind and body as something being known? Because that's the like the reason the Buddha creates this frame called in the tradition the five aggregates, his teaching on the mind and body. He creates this frame to interrupt, to challenge the habit of taking the experience of the mind and body personally. So as an alternative to taking my seeing personally or the feeling of emotion personally, I have this other alternative. It's the mind and body being known. You see? So we're creating a different frame to use to understand the experience of being a human being. Oh, it's just one of these five things being known. It's a feeling being known. It's just a memory or perception being known. It's just consciousness being intuited or being known or some intention, some mental formation being known or some one of the five physical senses being known. And... Because that frame that the Buddha suggests we use is in line with the way it actually is, right? Anybody want to argue that experience isn't just one of these things being known? I mean, you could categorize it slightly differently, but we'd all end up with the same agreement that, in fact, what it is to be a living being, a human being, is something is being known. Can you think, imagine any moment of your life where in its essence that moment wasn't something was being known. Something is being known. I know life seems much more involved or complicated, but that's just something being known too. (laughs) Right? Because our thoughts are very seductive. Like I can have a thought, oh my God, this world is crazy. But in the essence, that experience is that thought being known. And if there's an emotion associated with that thought, 
And if that's what consciousness was knowing, then that feeling was just a feeling being known. Make sense? So it's always this, and we can train the mind to see it this way. But it's a real upturning change in how we are. This is how the Buddha talks about it. He says, it's as if we're turning upright what had been overthrown, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost, or holding up a lamp in the dark for those with eyes to see. And it brings to mind a a little metaphor that I've used in the past. And I'm not sure where I first heard this or noticed this, but it's just sort of an interesting thing. Like, how our way of being or way of experience is very much habit-based. And so we're in the habit of not seeing what we don't, we're not in the habit of seeing, and seeing what we're in the habit of seeing. And just as a sort of teaching point, you can imagine your backdoor screen. And let's just say you were raised in a family that had a real... You know, maybe your mother or father sold screens for a living, right? So you're like into screens, nylon screens, aluminum screens, you know, the screens that are sort of further apart, those that are really fine, right? And you noticed everything there was to notice about screens, like whether it was really clean or whether it had dead bugs in it or whatever it was, you noticed it and you were interested in it. So interested in it that whenever you were at the back door, all the way through your childhood, you didn't notice anything but the screen because you were fascinated with screens. Oh, this is different than the screen at my friend Johnny's house, you know. I think this is the best screen in the whole world. (laughs) Until one day you bumped into a, a wise friend who said, you know, there's something about screens you're not noticing. Next time you're around a screen, really relax. Relax your gaze. And more importantly, you know, you need a beginner's mind. You need to look at that screen as if for the first time, without it being your perception being filtered by all of your past history with screens. It's crazy. I know screens. I don't know what you're talking about. But it, it landed enough in him that the next time he was in a screen, he said, I'll just... I know, I know, it, I know it's going to happen already, but I'm just going to do it. So he, you know, he's looking, looking, and he relaxed his gaze, and he sort of abandoned his expectations of what he thought he was going to see looking at the screen. And lo and behold, there was this shift, right, from the eyes, the visual experience, being fixated on the screen, because you know this experience when you're really fixated on the screen, you don't see anything beyond it. Right, But then he made the shift, and all of a sudden the backyard came into view. Oh my God, I didn't know there was a backyard out there. <laughs> it's like a, something was always there. That backyard was always there, but missed over and over again. And basically the Buddha is saying, this is what we're doing with the mind and body. We're so sure we know the mind and body. But what we really know is our idea. 
the, our mental construction of the mind and body, we don't really know the mind and body. You know, I've been teaching now for a long time and uh, been practicing for uh, 36 years or so. And, uh, and so I've had a lot of people come to me like to talk about practice. And, and just this one example of this shift is in one's awareness of the body. Because our, we have a very uh, defined, very strong, habitually strong idea of the body. And it involves a lot of concept and mental image of the body. And so people who meditate with some sincerity, some regularity, with good instructions, then eventually, just sitting, eyes open or closed, it's a little bit easier for this understanding to rise with the eyes closed. And they're, let's say, have doing a body-based awareness, like some, something similar to what we did tonight, breathing in, aware of the whole body, breathing out, aware of the whole body, just that body-based awareness. And then all of a sudden, because they've been collecting data, like bodies like this, bodies being known and it's like this, just this, all of a sudden they realize that the direct, immediate experiencing of the body is nothing like their thought about the body. Have you had this experience? I'm sure some of you have. Like, for example, my idea, the story I tell myself, is my body has weight. Anybody not have that idea of their body? Substance, solidity, weight. Right? That's a pretty common... And some of you would put a lot of money down that that's true. Right? No? <laughs> yeah, we put because we're pretty sure that's true. But in experience, direct non-filtered experience, that's not the experience of the body. Here, I'll just give you an example. Put your arm somewhere where your hand's just sort of sitting out in space. Close your eyes, because it's a little easier with your eyes closed. And tune in to the sensations in your palm, in your fingers. Not your mental image of your hand, and of course not your ideas about your hand, but the just the experience of sensation, vibration, tingling, warmth, coolness, whatever you feel. Practice resting in that direct, immediate knowing. So does do these sensations have any shape? actual sensations. Any, they have anything to do with shape or weight? It's just a movement, like a pixelated movement of sensation, a flow really. Sometimes people make the wrong conclusion. You can open your eyes. Put your hand down if you want. <laughs> People sometimes come to the wrong conclusion when they're having a sit and the mind settles into a, a more stable, clear experience that's not so mediated by their thoughts about things. 
to a more direct experiencing of body, let's say, and they'll draw the wrong conclusion later and say, yeah, I, I must have levitated, right? Because the body, the idea that the body has weight no longer dominates the mind, and the mind is more aware directly of sensation in motion, like a flow of energy. And so it, it can, uh, the mind can conclude, oh, uh, the body had weight, and then I did something in the body, lost weight. But it's really what happened is a shift from the mind, the knowing mind, paying attention to the idea of the body, to the knowing mind, paying, paying attention to the direct experience of sensation. And they're like two different realities. In the same way that looking at a menu is different than eating the food on the menu, right? They're related, thinking about my body and experiencing sensation, they're related, but they're really different things. So this is the, the training we're trying to do with the, in the meditation practice, is make this shift from the mind sort of in its habits, in its attention to, or really being lost in its ideas about things, in its framing things in terms of self. There's a very interesting discourse I wanted to share tonight. This talk the Buddha gave way back when. Sort of interesting beginning. He says, an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill mill person, right? and then he defines an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person, you know, just an ordinary person, someone who has no regard for people with wisdom, like who are trying to help them, but they say, oh, you don't need to tell me, I already know. So thinking we already know, and no respect for people who have purified their actions, really have developed a lot of ethical conduct. That's how he defines a run-of-the-mill person. And then, and then the third way he defines them, so the first two ways, uh, they're, not, they're, they're not humble. They're not willing to learn from people with wisdom or people with really developed ethical conduct because they think, I'm good enough already. And then the third way he defines a run-of-the-mill person is they take these five things personally. They take their seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching personally. They take perception personally, feeling tone personally, mental formations, and consciousness personally. So this is how the discourse goes. They assume form or body to be self or the self as possessing form or form as in the self, or the self as in the form, the body, right? And this is Ajahn Tani Saro's comments about this discourse. He's a contemporary Buddhist monk, a Westerner, who uh, runs, teaches at a Buddhist monastery just outside of San Diego. He got trained in Thailand and has been a monk now for many decades, a wonderful teacher. There's a lot of good stuff on the Internet that you can read and study. Anyway, he says in this article... This sense of me and mine is rarely static. Taking these five things personally is a quite dynamic process. We're doing it literally moment by moment. We're personalizing whatever experience is being known. He says, it roams like an amoeba, changing its contours as it changes location, sometimes expansive, sometimes contracted, 
it can view itself as identical with one of these five aspects of the mind and body, as possessing, like I possess feeling, I possess this painful feeling, it's mine, as existing within one of them, like I'm in, somehow who I am is in the consciousness, or the consciousness is in me, or the feeling is in me. At times feeling infinite, at other times, inf- uh, at times feeling finite, at other times infinite, whatever shape it takes, it's always unstable and insecure. For these five aspects of the body and mind, providing its food are simply activities and functions, inconstant and insubstantial. Right? And this is the interesting thing about what feels so solid, like me or mine, this sense of self feels really solid. But when we observe the mind more carefully, more consistently, we see that it's being renewed over and over again. And this should give us some evidence, like if somehow we were able to track all the different ways we constructed a sense of me or mine today, like I felt defensive, that felt like me. I thought about lunch. Oh, yeah, that would be nice. That felt like me, me wanting to eat that. Wishing I hadn't eaten so much. That felt like me, like that scolding, that judgment. Oh, I shouldn't have eaten. What, do I, what was I thinking? That felt like me. So when we, if we could track all the different ways we had an experience that felt like me or mine or I was there or it was in me, we'd see one thing that would really stand out is how fast, how often the sense of self changes. Like um, Ajahn Tanisaro, this Buddhist monk, says, it's like an amoeba, it's always changing, always reconstructing the sense of self. And you can see this in others as you observe other people, good friends, people you live with. You see how their mind is getting identified forming, constructing a sense of self. And it's very, you know, and then if you pull the rug out, like, no, no, you're wrong. You see, they can mor- we can morph very easily. No, no, you're wrong, right? So th- then that's, like, a moment b- ago, they were sort of really identified with their opinion, but then you just sort of showed them you're wrong, you know? And then, so th- instead of, like, oh, I don't want to, you know, the ship's sinking, I'll make myself the person who's going to, sort of put you down or, you know, look the other way. Like, well, let's talk about this. I didn't really mean that anyway. Let's talk about this. So we're always finding another way to reaffirm, because it's a habit, the sense of self. It's always there. And we can observe it. And the more we observe it, we'll sense the exhaustion, the stress, the weight and having to keep constructing that frame. And we'll start to intuit the liberating release of not needing to put that into the mix. We really don't have to. Let me just finish this paragraph. In the words of the canon, the teachings of the Buddha, the five aggregates are like foam, like a mirage, like the bubbles formed when rain falls on water. They are only heavy 
because the iron grip of trying to cling to them is burdensome. As long as we're addicted to passion and delight for these activities, as long as we cling to them, we're bound to suffer. That really points to where we're going with the practice. Is it possible to have a mind and body without being confused or clinging to the experience, to the sensitivity? Because that's what the mind and body is. It's this sensitive in these ways, right? Sensitive to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Sensitive to the feeling, the perception, the intention or other mental formations. Sensitive to knowing, to consciousness itself. Right? So we're sensitive in this way, these ways. Can we be sensitive in this, in these ways without taking it personally? Well, if we train, we can. Otherwise, we'll be swept along by the force of habit to personalize these. And remember, like even now, if whatever reaction, if any reaction is there in your mind, or you're just bored, but whatever it is that's arising in the mind is something being known. It's these, you know, the mind and body, and the way the mind and body is sensitive, it's that sensitivity being known. And the question is, can it be that simple? Can we let it be that simple? And even if we do self around it, you know, we take it personally, we resist because we don't like it, we hold on because we like it. So let's say there's some self-centered activity. You see, wisdom in any moment can realize that is just something being known. Even the grasping, the struggling, the resisting is also just something being known. So it's not like there's actually something we have to get rid of, right? And this is a really powerful point in this, because otherwise, when you hear a talk like this, there can arise in our mind the sense that, oh my God, this whole edifice of self, I have to somehow unearth. I got to get in there with the shovel. I got to dig out all the roots of this selfing, you know, And it feels like such a burden for me to have to purify my mind of self. But what we're really doing, all we have to do is understand that it's just something being known. So what we call self, what we call attachment or taking things personally or being identified or being reactive, what we call that is just something being known. It's just something being known. It's just this being known. So the only thing that's changing as we develop the practice is understanding. We're developing understanding based on the way things are. So if anybody asks you, what are you doing at Common Ground? I'm developing an understanding (laughs) based on the way things are. In order to develop that understanding that's based on the way things are, I have to strengthen the mind, the stability of awareness, so I can develop this understanding based on the way things are. Because the way we develop that understanding is we pay attention to the way things are. We observe, this is being known, this is being known. It sounds so boring. This is being known, (laughs) this is being known. But it's really revolutionary. And so be ready when the mind tells you it's boring, That's just something being known. 
Right? That's a reaction, a, a habit of selfing that's being known. Like, this is boring to me. I want something exciting. Okay? Well, that's just something being known. Can that be okay, that, that, that that's just something being known? Or do I have to believe it? Right? And get swept away with it. This is from one of my teachers, a Burmese teacher, Saida Utejaniya. He's been coming to the States regularly, although he's on sabbatical now. Uh, but he has a monastery in Burma that some folks even in our center here have gone out to Burma to study with him. He's got a number of books online uh, that you can download for free. They're really great that have been nicely translated into English. So a couple quotes from his teaching. He says, we don't complain about what's happening. Everything is experience, right? Something being known. Whatever is happening is happening through cause and effect. They do their job. We do our job. What should we do? We just recognize what is happening. Everything is nature, right? So what is being known? This is being known. And as we observe this is being known, this is being known, we see that the body, these five things, and the mind, these four things, we see that it's nature, not self. And this is something that can be kind of a quick um, way back to the practice in the middle of the day, not in your formal sitting, although you can use it there too. But just ask the question, like noticing what you're noticing, being sensitive to what you're sensitive to, just ask, is this nature or self? So you could do it right now, like you're hearing or seeing. And the experience of seeing or hearing what I'm saying or thinking whatever you're thinking as you look at that, as you open to that experiencing, is this nature or self? It's just the activity of nature, isn't it? Causes and conditions. These causes and conditions are unfolding in a natural, lawful, or conditional way, and they're being known. The mind is sensitive and knowing, right? So we can see that it's not just when the uh, big weather system is blowing through town, that's not the only thing that's nature. Or when you watch birds at the bird feeder, you know, that's not just nature. Even the internal activity, even the neurotic activity of our mind, that is as much nature as the breeze blowing through the leaves of a tree or the weather blowing into town or whatever else you might imagine nature is, all activities that can be known are the activities of nature, meaning that they're lawful. There's no center, just like we might say, well, this is the weather in Minneapolis, but we know there's no center. There's no like control center of the weather in Minneapolis, right? It's an interdependent phenomenon, isn't it, right? There's no center to weather anywhere. There's no center in the woods. You know, when you sense the ecology, the buzz of life, the leaves, the bugs, the worms, the other creatures all doing its dance with the air and the molecules and just the play, is there a center to all that? No. There's no center to the community of common ground. There's no center to a person. It's just multiple innumerable, probably infinite forces playing, 
like even in a molecular atomic level, what's going on, right? It's just this dance of different forces acting out their particular characteristics. And that's true on whatever level you look at it. You look at it at a galactic level or a subatomic level or this level. We see it's just the activity of nature. And so when we cultivate this way of being, this way of understanding, we purify habits of misperception, and lo and behold, attachment drops away. Clinging drops away. Hatred, greed, delusion, denial drop away. And we find that we live in a much more compassionate and skillful, wise way in the world. Not because somebody's trying to be skillful or compassionate. It is the organic, natural result of a mind or whatever this is, this mind-body is, coming into alignment with the way things are. So I'll leave it here. It'd be nice to hear some of your thoughts, your questions about what I've said. This is a, a, I don't know, confusing but subtle topic. So, yeah, you want to start us off, Mike? So, as I'm thinking about... uh, Maybe a little closer. As I'm thinking about this practice, a question that comes to mind for me is... uh, so how do I how do I practice this outside of sitting? Because I mean, <clears throat> in our day to day experiences, we have whether it's at work or at home, situations arise where we feel passionate, and that passion leads us to do things, respond. Maybe at work, um, someone does something. I mean, you can say. Well, that's just, you know, anger being known or or that's just uh, whatever action someone's taken being known. Mm-hmm. But how do you process that, but then also act? Yeah. At first it feels clunky, which is why we practice in the relative simplicity of a formal meditation time. But it doesn't have to ultimately be clunky. Sometimes I share how in arguments with my partner, Wynn, the co-founder of Common Ground and one of our teachers here, you know, that things have really evolved over the years where we can be sort of in a heated discussion slash argument, but it's like the mind can flash back and forth where in one moment where delusion is reigning in the mind, it feels really personal, like she's absolutely wrong here, <laughs> and I'm right. And I got to convince her of that. And then in the next moment, without like no distance, the mind understands that this isn't personal, that it's like this, like the charge in the body is being known. And the activity, you know, what is what it is. It's just this being known. And there's a lot of freedom, even if that lasts for less than a second. And then in the next moment, the mind might be seduced back into where everything feels real, except there's a little bit left over from that previous moment of insight that it almost makes the, like it feels real, but there's a kind of transparency or porousness 
So the anger is there. It has the shape of anger or shape of defensiveness or the shape of whatever emotion is getting triggered, but it's not quite as believable. It's just a little bit lighter. And then the more and more we practice, we our personality is still going to get pushed, still ride the roller coaster of joy and sorrow, up and down, praise and blame. But the whole thing is understood more and more often, more and more deeply as just that play of up and down. So we know it's up, we know there's joy, but we're not confused about the joy. We know there's defensiveness or anger, or, but we're not, you know, it's there. We don't even need to get rid of it because we have this other option, which is not being confused, being willing to feel what it feels like without having to habitually act it out. Oh, I'm feeling really hurt. I'm feeling really hurt. Yeah, I could hit back or I could just feel what I'm feeling. So you'll find that it actually ultimately frees you up. Your personality is, in a sense, you're more Mike than you were before when you do the practice. That's really the fruit of practice, is the personality is liberated, not repressed. We think that doing the practice is going to repress the personality. You know, like, I don't want to make a mistake, so I'm going to keep quiet or I'm going to sort of stay put. But actually, uh, we're the first to, more likely the first to cry, the first to laugh, the first to speak, the first to shut up. It's, it's like we, these degrees of freedom increase, they don't decrease the more we practice. Because the wisdom that is aware, right, it's not, it's not a suppressing wisdom. It's an understanding wisdom. And there's always some way to respond. It's like the, the only time we would be quiet when that dynamic action of keeping quiet is seen as being the skillful thing. But if speaking up was understood as a skillful thing, that would arise. And it isn't even like you or I have to decide that. It will just happen in the clarity in the simple clarity that the mind has in those moments. But we have to see it to believe it. That's the thing. Because it does seem like if I'm being aware, then I can't act. But that's why we use that image of the mirror. Like we're training the mind to have a mirror. But the mirror doesn't stop anything from happening. It's just reflecting back. It's like this now. This is being known. This is arising. This is being felt. But it doesn't have any opinion about what you do or don't do. It's just reflecting back to yourself. This is how it is, right? So you can just imagine, like, there's just a mirror there. Perfect mirror, simple mirror, effortlessly reflecting back. This is being known. This is being felt. It's like this. And you see, the whole system becomes so much more intelligent because of that reflective awareness that's there. Because now, whatever's tumbling forward, what we call me living my life, it has this reflective knowing that it's like this. This is being known. This is being felt. This is being seen. Yeah, thanks, Mike, for bringing that up. Who'd like to go next? Yeah, Anne? Um, 
I have difficulty with the words, this is being known, because for whatever reason, it flips me into kind of a cognition place, like I'm being known. Um, so I translate it into um, a more, um, more of a just now, like a now, like a sensation, like a texture of maybe even a, like a texture of space that's sort of maybe gelatinous or something so that the it's just more here more now um and i don't know if that's just how uh i i don't know if that's just a lack of skill you know being 5 years in not 36 years in or if it's just every one of us has to find the key to the present moment. Yeah, that sounds right. And then one more thing about the present moment. When I'm really sunk in it, like when it really feels like things are unfolding and it's odd and it's surprising, it, I don't know that I'm aware of knowing it. I mean, even I feel like I'm like, I'm in it. So I'm kind of confused about that. Yeah. but And it's a really important point because... What I'm talking about and what I think the Buddha is talking about is different than just absorption. Because we do have merging or absorption experiences where we're playing basketball or we're making love or we're working or doing hospice work like you do, Anne, and, or even cooking dinner or being with the breath. So in these activities, we can lose ourselves in them. In the same way we can lose ourselves in a good movie or a good novel good conversation with a friend, time seems to pass effortlessly, you know, right? And those are, those are somewhat healing experiences. There's a lot of joy in absorbing into an activity. That's why we have hobbies and do things, you know, because it's nice. We basically get a break from being a human being because we put down the load, all of our worries, all of our unfinished business, it gets put down because we absorbed into this activity for a while. But the problem is we re-emerge from that absorption back into kind of what let's just call it ordinary sort of frame of mind. And that can be rude, a rude awakening, like, oh, yeah. oh. I, I think some of you have heard me say this, but I noticed when we first moved to Minneapolis in the early 90s and we'd go to a movie, my wife and I would go to a movie, and I'd notice how, what a jerk I was after movies. I was like irritated and just sort of not so pleasant to be around. And I, you know, because I was doing a lot of practice and really curious about my mind, I just kept observing, kept observing, took a number of years. But eventually my mind connected the dots and I started to understand what was going on, which was the movie, like because I was practicing a lot, I was right in the middle of a lot of stuff. That's, you know, you think you're going to get to pleasant states? Yeah, sometimes. But we tend to open, as we do practice in a sincere way, to a lot of unfinished business. So I was right in the middle of it, being fearless, doing the best I could. And then I'd go do some entertainment, like go see a movie, and I'd get a break for my practice, which was intense. And it felt really nice. I'd absorb into the, even a scary movie, it didn't matter, because it wasn't my life. 
and wasn't what I was feeling, like all the unfinished business and all whatever was swirling in my body and mind. And I had a break. And then the movie would end, and there it all was again. Right? And there was like years where like, when I'd go on retreats or sit or just eventually just through the day, I was just feeling a lot of fear all the time. It had nothing to do with what was going on in my life. It was just old stuff coming to the surface. And it was always hard to come back. And as it was coming back, because I didn't want it to come back, I would sort of blame the world. You know? And so I'd act it out. I'd be irritable. I'd be in a funk. I'd be, you know, take it out of my partner, basically. And then I learned what was going on. Like, it's just a really yucky feeling. And I had temporarily escaped that yucky feeling. So now, like, even when I go to a movie or do entertainment, I try to stay connected with the way it is. Like, not forget, not choose to absorb. Not that absorption is bad, but why absorb when you got to come back anyway? So I choose on purpose now, to not get lost. I mean, I still do, you know, to some degree. But more and more, I choose not to absorb into entertainments. doesn't mean I don't do entertainments, but I stay somewhat, I try to stay connected so that I'm not, there isn't a rude awakening when it's over. So one of the ways we stay connected is we realize I'm sitting here in the movie theater watching the movie. Or I'm sitting here and there's something really fun on the, computer that I'm watching and it's like this now it's just this pleasant feeling being known you see it kind of seems like it will spoil it because we want to get lost but I don't want to get lost anymore that's why I stopped drinking you know 30 some years ago whenever it was that I stopped drinking it's like I like drinking I like doing drugs but but I at some point you have to choose like the joy of getting lost in this is being recorded. Well, I got to take that off. <laughs> it was a long time ago. <laughs> but we have to choose. Like, do I want to be lost, or do I want to be real? And the thing is, we have to make that choice. So, mindfulness just isn't that depth of awareness. It's also a breath. So even if we're getting really, like I know from you sharing in the past, and you know, your mind has a real talent to get subtle, right, in terms of body. And so, but just because the mind has that talent, which is a good talent to have, you don't want to lose the breadth of awareness. You don't need to lose the breadth to get the depth. You want both. Well, then that's, what you, that's your edge, right? And to look at, because a lot of times, you know, and there are reasons why people choose to cultivate one. Like, especially if you're trying, like, often people who have a lot of pain, they might want to go deep to get some distance from the pain. Or people who are afraid of what's deep might want to stay with breath. So there's all kinds of different psychological, emotional reasons why we cultivate the practice we cultivate. And that's why it's good to hear different teachings, because it will challenge our habits. And we won't just sort of do what's... initially easier for us. We're out of time, so we're going to have to leave it here. Sorry about that. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time to take a couple breaths together.
It always feels right to appreciate all the women and men, all the folks before us who had busy lives, but somehow, in some way, they developed the practice. And so for many hundreds of years, people have been transmitting, passing down these teachings, their insights, one generation after another. And we're the recipients of this generous, compassionate sharing. And now it's our turn to be sincere, dedicated practitioners, to cultivate this continuity of awareness, and to share the wisdom that arises to be compassionate, to support the next generations. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.